Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. It is summit season in world politics. Jakarta hosted the ASEAN meeting this week. New Delhi is hosting the G20 Leaders Summit. And later this month, world leaders will assemble in New York for the United Nations General Assembly. Clearly, world leaders love to gather. But more seriously, as the United States and China compete for influence, the rest of the world has felt pressure to pick sides, form alliances, or if they can, make the most of sitting on the fence. FP's fall print issue explores how countries are jostling for power in the 21st century. There are some great essays in there, and I urge you to try them out. If you're not a subscriber, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. One of the authors in the issue is John Eikenbury, a Princeton University professor who's one of the leading thinkers about the liberal international order. Now, as the issue examines the most important alliances in the world, Eikenbury makes the case for the G7, a group that includes Britain, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United States, and the presidents of the European Commission and European Council. So it's a bit more than seven. But the G7 is becoming what the White House calls the steering committee of the free world. Eikenberg explains why. But we also discuss what the G7's importance means for the world. Does it mean that China, which isn't in the alliance, will push back with its own versions of groups? Does it mean that more inclusive organizations like the G20 or the United Nations become less important? These are all great questions to explore, and there's nobody better to parse through them than Eikenbury. Let's dive in. John Eikenbury, welcome to FP Live. Great to see you, and uh, I'm glad to be part of the special issue. It's our pleasure to have you on, a privilege. So, John, um, let's start with your essay. It is up on our website. I encourage everyone to take a look at it. And in your essay, you focus on the growing importance of the G7, and there are pros and cons to this. But let's begin with this. Why is the G7 important today? Well, I think the world today has been uh, increasingly divided into pieces. We are uh, in a fragmented world. Uh, the promise of convergence of the global system, the, the economy, the, the global security system that came out of the Cold War has certainly not panned out. And most recently, the Ukraine war has not united the world, but in some sense pushed the different 
groupings into their corners. And it certainly provided an opportunity for the, uh, the, the world's leading democracies, the wealthy industrial democracies to, to step forward, not simply to support Ukraine, although that's part of what the G7 has done in most recent iteration, but to rearticulate the importance of the global order, the, the global multilateral system that these countries really uh, built and uh, curated over the last uh, 75 years. So the G7 is the place where liberalism and liberal internationalism goes to be reborn. So it is playing a role, as I argue in the piece, for coalition building, uh, agenda setting. It's one of the few institutions that has a package of, of assets or characteristics that, that are compatible with the current moment. Uh, it spans the Pacific and the, the Atlantic. It's trilateral in that sense. It's informal, so it can adapt to new issues. It's organized around like-minded states, so it doesn't have to cross barriers of getting beyond uh, a democracy versus autocracy. And it has a, a kind of spirit of shared leadership. It passes the baton, if you will, each year to, to another member that takes the lead in setting the agenda. Uh, this year, it's Japan, and Kushida has done a quite remarkable job in driving the agenda, getting agreement. And Kushida has called uh, that particular summit in May the most important in Japan's history. I was, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about why that summit in particular in May was so important and, and what was accomplished. Yes, well, Kushida has found a way to gain agreement uh, that these countries are committed to a world where nuclear weapons are are reduced and then eliminated. Uh, very aspirational, but but that's the kind of idea generation that the G7 is noted for. Mm. There clearly was, and this was as much by the efforts of uh, Kishida than anybody else to bring the coalition, the G7, into explicit, strong uh, agreement on support for Ukraine. And uh, Kishida, who doesn't uh, occupy a position in Europe and in NATO, uh, nonetheless has helped the uh, through the G7 to make that commitment, not just a European or Atlantic or transatlantic commitment, but something that that brings in other uh, industrial democracies, other countries outside of Europe. Uh, so I think that uh, has both symbolic and real importance. Secondly, you saw um, uh, Kushida use the G7 to invite others, uh, uh, including the Korean leader, Yon, who uh, was there in Hiroshima and in side meetings, uh, uh, provided an occasion for for uh, Biden and Kushida and Yon to talk about strengthening their triangular relationship, which has always been a kind of weak link in, in East Asia. All these democracies, uh, shared interests and shared values, but uh, all facing a, a very formidable geopolitical region and not really talking to each other. So finding that new level of, of trust, including more specifically bilaterally between uh, Seoul and Tokyo, Furthermore, a kind of a, another uh, important uh, takeaway from Hiroshima was uh, the movement, I think, forward of the Biden administration to find common ground on, you might call it its uh, trade and technology agenda, which involves tightening restrictions on high-end technology and investment to China. 
to do it in a way that is multilateral or at least minilateral among these countries, if the U.S. Uh, is to succeed in, as Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has called a kind of building a, a small yard with high fences, that is to say, a safeguard of certain technologies, the crown jewels, if you will, of the, these countries, it has to be done together. So I think there was agreement on that, and uh, that's an ongoing work in progress, but you could say that's that was a pushed forward by by the G7 meeting. Given everything you're saying, um, and the G7 made some attempts to broaden its scope, uh, as you mentioned, uh, South Korea's leader was there, um, India was also invited to sort of attend on the sidelines. But isn't it by definition, a group of seven exclusionary, that there's a G150 plus that isn't a part of it. And therefore, doesn't it become harder for the G7 to accomplish solutions to any of the the truly big global problems? Linked to all of that, what does it say about the other big uh, groupings, the United Nations and others, that haven't been able to really be the forum where big problems get talked about and discussed and solutions are agreed upon in a way that is multilateral and equitable? Yes, I think about that a lot. I don't think the G7 should be the governing body for the world. I think it is a coalition of like-minded states who historically have found it possible to work together to drive agendas, both for themselves, the, the liberal democracies, and there are issues that are unique to them uh, that, uh, that are not global issues, but are issues about liberal democracy and its fate and fortune and, and the management of economic relations between these countries that make up about 40% of the world GNP. Uh, they are also able to work on behalf of larger global issues, not simply to make the world safer for themselves, but to act together as a catalyst for wider global action. This, of course, is what they were trying to do with the nuclear disarmament proposal. So trying to put issues out there that other bodies will, will take up. And, and it's not meant to push aside other bodies, including the BRICS and, and uh, other regional bodies. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of many. And I think that's the world we're, we're moving into, that uh, there will be many hubs with networks that reach out uh, regionally and globally, there will be lots of different groupings, and those that are in the G7 will be working in other groupings as well. John, I'm curious about China's role and influence as we discuss uh, groupings. Uh, from everything you're describing about the G7 as a like-minded group, as a group that shares uh, some goals in common, you know, also clearly um, some of their policies can be construed in Beijing as ones that are aligning countries, not explicitly against it, but, you know, excluding China. And then you look at how other groups then that China has a stake in, whether it's BRICS, whether it's the G20, how does that then end up fracturing the world into groupings that do or do not include China? And does everything then become sort of colored by U.S.-China competition? Yes, uh, China looms uh, large in this discussion of 
the emerging alignments and institutional mechanisms for governance today as they evolve. Uh, uh, and there is both importance for for cooperation and competition. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that the world can do both. There are uh, global bodies that will continue to bring, hopefully, China and the United States together. Uh, the G20, while it hasn't become as successful a body as many people thought it would be during the Obama years when it looked like it was where the action was and the G7 was was fading away, if only because so much of the world now lives in the non-G7 world, uh, most of humanity. Uh, so the G G20 uh, is where that conversation occurs across the North versus South and East versus West. And that's going to continue. There's going to be a G20 meeting hosted by Delhi soon. And uh, while she and Putin will not be there, uh, Biden will be. And there is a real opportunity for looking at those broader interests. And then in November, there will be the APEC meeting in San Francisco. That may be the next place where Biden and she meet, although she is not totally committed, as I understand it, to attending. And maybe there is a little bit of a negotiation going on there about that. But in this kind of multi-layered world, uh, we are going to see lots of different platforms where different groups get together for different purposes, divided by a regime type, uh, like-minded states working together, other times divided by sectoral interests, other times divided by regional alignments. Uh, so I think one wants to keep all those different groupings working so that the global issues can be addressed across these otherwise important and uh, persistent uh, ideological divides. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In a world where more and more of these groups proliferate and each seems to have its own sort of role and its own purpose, I'm curious about your take on the rising influence of swing states. Uh, think of a country like India, which is hosting the G20, was on the sidelines of the G7, wants to be seen as uh, a player in the global south, the voice of the global south, but it doesn't ally cleanly uh, with any country or any side. Historically, it hasn't wanted to pick sides at all. Are we entering a world in which swing states just have more power? And is that because the US and China are 
more directly in competition over the last few years that U.S. policy has changed to reflect that? Uh, or is this a broader trend uh, for the rest of the 21st century? I think there is something here that's new. I think partly triggered uh, by the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the crisis that has ensued, partly driven by the rise of China and all the geopolitical reverberations that have followed. Uh, there is a kind of... Uh, growing divide between, on the one hand, Russia and China, and on the other hand, the the, the G7 countries, a, a kind of two different worlds with different agendas, different visions, different narratives of what's right and what's wrong, grievances and aspirations for the next world order. And between them sits uh, much of the world, uh, the global south, but that's a very amorphous term that covers up a lot of complexity and difference. But nonetheless, Stepping back and simplifying, we do look increasingly like in the wake of this current crisis in Ukraine and all that's come out of it, a kind of three world system where you have the, the global West, which isn't just the geographical West, but this larger grouping based on values and interests and traditions, uh, and the global East, which is uh, Russia and China, and the global South, which is, again, uh, what you would might call the swing world uh, portion that is not committed in alliances necessarily or ideology necessarily with either East or West. And in some ways, they have more power, symbolic power. Uh, in a paper I've just written, I've tried to argue that in some sense, they help establish the terms for legitimacy of international order, that neither the U.S. nor China can impose a vision on the world, that they have to convince states, starting with the Global South. And the Global South is obviously, for pragmatic reasons, interested in development and economic interests as much as you know maintaining or, or protecting uh, certain universal principles. But nonetheless, they do have a sense of what a, a world with a greater amount of social justice might look like. And I think there's a way in which this three worlds competition where uh, the East and the West in some sense compete for these swing states, knowing they will never bring them fully into their, their orbit, but that uh, in a world where alignments matter, partnerships matters, creating a critical mass to set standards for technology, that there's a kind of competition for providing public goods. And, and so I think there is something very creative going on right now. And I think uh, the Global South is at the center of it. I think it, it also helped bring the UN back into the picture because the General Assembly, which has always been kind of a geopolitical backwater, at least seen from the great power capitals, uh, has a new role in, in voting up or down on resolutions relating to Russia and other issues. And there's a kind of debate going on right now. I don't know how far it will go on reform of the Security Council permanent membership system. So uh, I think the Global South has a, has a real opportunity to be involved in these debates about the next era of governance. And mm. uh, their swing position gives them elevated leverage. And uh, I, I think they're they're trying to use it and find a way to use it. Mm. And there's also the uh, the COP meetings later this year at which the Global South tends to have uh, speak with one voice and push for things that are high up on their agenda. Related to all of this, Bill McCullough, uh, a subscriber, writes in with a question. And he says, 
A reality that may or may not have begun to sink in is the historical truth that we are today paying the price for three centuries during which the West, specifically Europe and North America, grossly exploited the people of Asia, the Pacific Islands, South and Central America, and Africa. How can we now help them in practical ways without reopening not yet fully healed wounds? And to add to Bill's question, uh, John, what is the role of major alliances in that space? Is it the United Nations that is best positioned to channel these voices? Is it the G20? Because again, from our discussion, so much of this is a current jostling for voice allocation in various groups. Yeah, I think that uh, there are you know, a world of legacies and grievances that uh, are still there. And I think that uh, finding ways to build a more inclusive order that has a, a glimmering of social justice, that countries to the table, that articulates principles that are then enshrined in our global institutions and put governments under pressure to do better, be better. In some ways, that that's the if I may say so, that's that's been the kind of the liberal Republican theory of politics from the Enlightenment onward, that you have a, a set of principles that go well beyond the reality of your current political order, but that puts you uh, ideally on a pathway for closing the gap between reality and ideal, a more perfect union, the pressure to make good on your promises. Uh, I, I think this is what we have today. We have a, a system with a, a global institution, United Nations, with lofty principles that are there as kind of a measuring stick for good behavior. We have the Universal Declaration, which was a, Eleanor Roosevelt will forever be remembered as the author of that, but it was really a coalitional group with scholars and, and thinkers from East and West who were part of that. So there is a kind of vision of a world that, that goes beyond empire and uh, exploitation. The liberal world order has both been complicitous in the old European world of empire, but it's also been a, a part of the agency that has brought the world out of empire to a world of nation states. And that was very much a post-World War II story uh, uh, the United Nations played a, a role in its platform. Uh, and uh, I, as I was saying earlier, I do think that to the extent the global South and various parties in it make the case and push hard, that's their job. That's their job to make the case for a better governance system that reflects reform and progress away from the old imperial order of the past. And uh, part of that job is to push the liberal democracies to live up to their ideals. And I, I think that dynamic is alive and well and on balance a progressive force in world politics. Many of our subscribers uh, want to ask you about the BRICS group and their recent meeting. I'll name check a couple who've sent in questions, David Kuhn, Eugenio Anguiano, and sort of to channel both of their questions in one. What is the, the point of BRICS and how do you view its recent move to expand, to include countries, including Iran, what does that mean for its orientation? And how should the West, 
and groups like the G7 view its development? I think it's um, it's an important grouping symbolically. I think it is driven by different agendas. What the thinking is about BRICS is different in Beijing than it is in Delhi than it is elsewhere. But broadly speaking, it's clearly an attempt to to bring uh, voices from outside of the West to to the table. They, they, there is a real effort to provide a kind of common front to push for, uh, you might say, post-Western world order. I think that would be the kind of animating impulse behind it, although it's more a critique than a set of positive reforms or a vision of a post-Western world order. It's a critique of of hegemony, of Western domination, and not necessarily a articulated new system uh, that would follow. Uh, so I think there's a lot of different disagreements within this group. And, and as the group gets larger, those disagreements will proliferate and, and become harder to, to pin down as, as, as a kind of vision kind of uh, grouping. But I, I think uh, it's part of this evolution of the global system where any outcome that you want uh, as a country, you can't impose it. You've got to work the system. You've got to build partnerships and alliances. Everybody is in the same boat in that sense, that the currency of world politics is about uh, building these uh, groupings that can aggregate power and capacity to to get the world to move in the direction you want it to go. And, and there are many different agendas out there. China probably has the most developed uh, post-Western vision. I, I don't think Putin does. I think he has more of a destructive vision of sabotaging and undermining, but uh, there are other other visions out there. Uh, and so there is competition for what the world will look like. They, they involve different values. I do think uh, China has a, a vision that that is in many ways to make the world safe for, for uh, autocracy, for its own uh, form of government. The G7 uh, clearly want to make the world safe for democracy. And much of the global South wants to develop, uh, show me the money. Uh, uh, it's mm -hmm. not. Uh, it's not so much about uh, alternative principles. It's about making. And this is where I would say the the liberal democracies have an advantage over China. It's about um, uh, capitalist development and uh, uh, technology transfer and uh, trade access and uh, and so uh, there is a real uh, opportunity for these other established uh, power positions in the world to advance their position by building these coalitions. And, and that, that's where we are today. And the BRICS is part of that fascinating, pluralistic competition for world order. It really is a moment of flux. Uh, let me ask you the inverse of, I guess, the general thrust of questions I've been putting to you so far. What is America's nightmare coalition? And part two of that is what would China's nightmare coalition be? Yeah, I remember um, talking to my students at Princeton about this at the very end of a course on grand strategy where we had studied Bismarck and recalled his nightmare coalition, uh, which was for him to have 
uh, Russia and France unified against uh, the newly unified Germany. Uh, and so the grand strategy of Bismarck was to keep those countries divided. And so the question I asked my students, what is uh, America's nightmare coalition? And I guess uh, for for the U.S. and its partners, the nightmare coalition would be if the we'll call again we'll call it the global South as a shorthand, uh, but we think of India perhaps most importantly were to swing uh, uh, around to China and consolidate a kind of block form of order uh, that would leave the West on the outside. So a nightmare coalition would be if if these groupings congealed in a way that made the West a kind of smaller, less global system. So I, I, I think that nightmare gives additional hard-headed geostrategic reasons for these countries to try to be inclusive, to build a, arguments for why liberal international order, a term I have been using in my work for many, many years, is an order that can be built upon and expanded for uh, to serve the self-interest of countries outside of the traditional world that created this liberal order back after World War II. China, on the other hand, I think would be the nightmare would be in some sense the reverse. If if there were uh, a sharp break with countries that historically, at least from Beijing's perspective, have been part of its coalition. Uh, after all, China. Uh, from Mao onward, have seen itself as a kind of spokesperson for the developing world, for the uh, global South. If it fails in its efforts to reach out, if its commercial diplomacy turns it into a nightmare for countries uh, who worry about uh, uh, security and, and flock to, to, to those on the outside uh, offering protection, uh, you could see a, a a China that doesn't have the world around it organized in the way that that it wants. So in in both cases, the the nightmare is a mirror of of, of the other. And uh, I think, as I've argued in in my work, I, we aren't going to get to either one of those nightmares anytime soon because I think there's a fairly there's a stability to much of the world wanting to stay, if not neutral. To, to keep their options open and have good relations with China, good relations with the United States, uh, often it's a complex bargain. Uh, in East Asia, countries uh, trade more with China, but have security partnership with the United States, uh, looking, again, uh, mark, looking to the dragon for markets and to the eagle for security and not wanting to have to choose. And so I, I think the world has a kind of structural weight to it that will make it hard for any one of the, we'll call it the two superpowers to roll up the system. Uh, we're, we're in a, a more pluralistic competitive world. Uh, and that uh, I think will prevent these ultimate nightmares from, from coming, uh, coming uh, to fruition. Hmm. Let me ask you this. So much of what we've been discussing today, these other groups, competition between the United States and China, and underpinning this discussion is, I think, also a sense of frustration around the world at paralysis uh, in the United Nations system 
um, at the World Bank, at the IMF. But of course, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. I mean, these are immensely influential systems uh, and groups that have done a lot for the world and continue to do so. Let me ask you this. Should America be prioritizing bilateral and regional relationships and groups, uh, as it might seem to be doing today? Or does it have more to gain through trying to revitalize and rejuvenate organizations such as the UN, which could only be revived if the United States took the lead? Well, I I think it has to work on all dimensions. Uh, I don't know that, that it should throw all of its efforts into simply trying to rebuild the United Nations. I think there's just a a, a brick wall there uh, um, with uh, Russian veto, uh, uh, Chinese veto. Uh, uh, the, there's been a there've been wonderfully creative groups of eminent persons studies about how to move the UN to a, a 21st century footing. And I, 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 as I said earlier, I think there's we're going to have another run at that. Uh, it just, just has that sense that we're that the things have gotten so bad that. Uh, that there's a, a agreement that we've got to try again to fix the UN. And there is this other dynamic that's helping that out a little bit, which is, as I mentioned earlier, you've got the global South as kind of the the conscience of uh, the UN uh, uh, making China and the United States who want uh, to to be uh, in the good graces of countries that are in the South to 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 make good on their promises. So I do think there's something there. And I, I, I do think we've got to work on it. We've got to have a, a better functioning United Nations. And we've got to at least uh, uh, continue to curate the principles uh, that are, for example, being stomped on right now by Russia and Ukraine. So there is a real opportunity to say, we've got a, a real world uh, case where we have a sovereign country that has been uh, invaded, uh, uh, attempted to territorially annex a country by force, and this is uh, just simply uh, not um, in the world that we want to live in. And, and there's a principle that must be defended, and that feeds back into the UN is going to make good on its promise and all that we want it to be. The UN principle has to prevail in places like Ukraine, and so I think there is a kind of real geopolitical underpinning to success uh, at that universal level. But I, at the same time, Raji, I think that we've got to work at, at in smaller, many lateral ways. Uh, Raji uh, Mohan and his piece in the uh, uh, cover issue uh, has a wonderfully insightful uh, piece about many laterals. And I would urge everyone to read his piece because he shows the importance of these networked groupings that uh, do have a role. If I were to step back and kind of just make the argument about how rulemaking and ordering is going to occur in the 21st century, it looks increasingly like it's going to start in small groupings and work out to larger groupings. If you look historically over the last several centuries, you've had different kinds of moments for building order and making rules and institutions that solve global problems. There's been the constitutional moments after the great wars where all the parties come together and there's some kind of, this is the way we're going to run the world moment. 
we've had other moments that have been more rulemaking through hegemonic leadership uh, during the Cold War. Uh, those two kinds of uh, top-down efforts don't seem to be in the cards right now. I don't. I don't think partly because the world is so diverse and there's no uh, overarching power formation. Uh, things are going to be done in, in smaller groups. And, and this would be coalitional rulemaking, uh, a third kind of a type. Uh, and we see a lot of that. That's what the G7 is fit for purpose. Uh, um, and it's it's partly a club. So in that sense, it's exclusive. But it's if it's an open club, it's more inclusive. That is to say, you, you develop rules and protocols and regimes or let's say artificial intelligence or quantum computing or other kinds of 21st century technology problems. And then you build a critical mass and then you invite others to join in. That looks more like what we're gonna be seeing. And uh, th there's a competitive dynamic underneath that. Uh, China will want to develop a critical mass of states in areas that would create rules and institutions that support its vision, and, and so too the industrial democracies. So competitive rulemaking. So I, I think we're that can be creative, and, and part of competition can be an upward progressive kind of dynamic, not just a race to the bottom. There's reason why the U.S. and its allies would like to lead the world in post-carbon energy technology, and so too China. So kind of competition to solve problems that the rest of the world cares about. And that was John Eikenberry, the Princeton University professor and contributor to FP's fall print issue, which I urge you to read. Sign up on our website, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website. That's foreignpolicy.com slash live. Next week, for example, we have Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. 
Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.